Good morning, Capital City Church. Good morning. We are going to be, once again, in the book of Exodus. If you want to turn with me, we're actually only going to read three verses. Uh, this morning, we're on our way through this journey, through the story of the Exodus. And so last week, we started the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, we did Commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4. We covered those. Uh, we're actually going to cover the next three today and then the next three next week. So we're not going to le- read a lot of Scripture. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother. And all the father and the mothers in the room say? Amen. That's right. Nail that one, Tim. <laughs> Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, which sound like three things that have nothing to do with each other, but they actually do. There's something that ties them together. So you can be seated. We're going to unpack this together. As I said, just by way of reminder, uh, this, our sermon series is called Exodus, and I, uh, Cody and I were talking about this before the service started. Uh, it, seems, it, feel, it feels like our projector is getting further and further downhill. I think it's getting hit by a volleyball during the week, so we'll be straightening that up soon. So bear with us. Uh, we did notice, and some of you noticed too, right? Uh, the story of Exodus. It's the story of the Israelites' flight from bondage. It's not just the book of Exodus. In fact, soon we're going to depart from the book of Exodus, and we're going to actually jump into the book of Numbers and kind of skim through some of the stories there. The interesting thing about this is, and some of you... Uh, maybe have thought about this before. Some of you maybe have never thought about it. Um, you, when you're going to preach a passage, it, your approach is different based on what kind of passage it is. And so because this is a narrative, it's a story, you can't always go verse by verse through the entire story. I mean, you could, but it would literally take, I mean, we could spend years on this story, which is amazing. It's a great idea. But as I've said before, there are other subjects we also want to talk about as well. So uh, this is the story arc of Israel's flight, the Israelites' flight from bondage in Egypt. Uh, this is part eight. Uh, so, and again, you, you kind of figured this out. Uh, this, there's kind of a three-part little sub-series in this. I think we're uh, it's either 13 or 14 weeks we're spending on this. But you kind of got a little three-part sub-series where we're talking about the Ten Commandments kind of right in the middle. This is uh, part eight. Leaving conflict through, and I'm, if you have your notes with you, uh, and I know most of you grabbed notes on the way in, and that's by design uh, that we, these sermons are made for you to write, write things down and remember things, take things with you. So look at the top of your notes. It says, leaving conflict through what? Justice. Good job. Yeah. Leaving conflict through justice. Now, I want to unpack this very quickly. And I, so you, I'm going to have to talk fast, and you're going to have to listen fast, okay? Here at Capital City Church, when we use the term justice, we actually mean something very specific. And this has really grown, in fact, in a very organic way um, that fr- from the very beginning uh, of our kind of inception as a church. We've talked about justice. And if you think about the arc of this church, it was started in fall, the fall, actually kind of late summer of 2020. There's been a lot of discussion about justice in our culture, Right. Uh, justice actually is a word, and you'll hear me do this sometimes, uh, where we get words that kind of become diluted and different people, different people mean different things when they use the same word, and the word kind of gets watered down or confusing. Oftentimes you'll hear me, instead of abandoning the word, I'll dig in on the word. 
uh, probably comes from stubbornness, which is not always a virtue, but maybe sometimes it can be. Here's the thing. Our culture doesn't get to define justice because justice is actually an attribute of God. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because theologically speaking, the word justice is a synonym for the word righteousness. And so even though you may have thought to yourself, well, I'm not sure about just, I've never heard of justice being listed as an attribute of God. I bet you've heard the term righteousness being used as an attribute of God. And so it literally means doing what's right by someone, right? Doing what's right. Well, here, listen, check it out. How do we know what's right? Well, God gets to define what's right. God gets to define not only how we live in righteousness towards him, but also how we live in righteousness towards each other. Here's the reason I'm telling you this. I want you to catch this. And almost every time we talk about the word justice in preaching, uh, you're going to hear me give you this little spiel because this is by way of reminder. Some pastors would call this vision casting, right? This is just a little reminder for you that one of the callings that we've discerned uh, that you are called to as a disciple. And, and so we're going to keep calling you to this. If you continue to be a part of this church, we're going to keep calling you to live with, with, live with justice, live with righteousness towards those around you. You'll hear us say we want you to live with faithfulness and justice towards your neighbor. What we're saying is we want you to act right towards those around you. And, and you have to figure that out in each context. It's, I, I understand it's a different story based on is the person that's around you a person who is a believer, they're a committed disciple, or maybe someone who is far from God. Of course, it's, it's a different discussion. Is this someone that I know really well, someone I'm in community with, or is it just uh, literally maybe my next door neighbor who I don't know as well? Yeah, you've got to figure that out. But God's calling you with, to live with justice towards them, which means we always purpose what's best for them. So when we talk about leaving conflict through justice, there's a context for that sermon title. That the secret for you and I, if we experience conflict, then I want you to listen to me. If you and I are around each other long enough, we're going to experience conflict. You know why? Because we're sinners. That wasn't a me, that's a we. Welcome to Marriage Counseling 101. Any two humans who spend enough time together are going to experience conflict because we are sinners. What's the solution? We pursue the justice of God, and I don't want you to think, you know, some heavy-handed judge, you know, bringing the, the sledgehammer of theology down on someone's head. That's not what I'm talking about. Living with justice towards my neighbor, if I'm living with justice towards Isaac, it, listen, it means I act toward him in the way that I should. Me living with justice towards him begins with me policing myself and going, how are my words and actions to him reflecting God? How am I purposing what's best for him? And I don't think it's a stretch for you to understand that if we were to conduct ourselves that way in our relationships, whether it's marital or parenting or, you know, extended family or neighbors or churches or whatever, if we were all genuinely pursuing justice with each other, it would actually help us with a lot of the conflict that we find ourselves in, wouldn't it? Yes, Tim, it would, absolutely. When our relationships are driven by God's design, we have a greater chance for peace. 
And here's the idea. Listen, if you wonder why we split it up the way that we did, some of you already know this, right? If you think about the Ten Commandments as a whole, they actually subdivide into the first four and the last six. That's why we did the first four last week. I didn't want to try to cover all six this week because it's just it's too much. We have to run too fast and we lose too much through that process. So here's the thing. The first four are really about our relationship with God. And the last six are really about our relationships with each other. And if you go back and read through the Ten Commandments, and I would encourage you to do that. It's actually a fascinating read, right? And it's, I think it's a great example of how all Scripture is, is, is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And these are some power-packed words and phrases and sentences. But you also see quickly how, okay, you got the first four we're dealing with God, the last six we're dealing with others. There is a pivot there, and yet they all go together in a nice package, and that is because we cannot separate our vertical relationship from our horizontal relationships. We can't separate this relationship, our relationship with God, from these relationships, which is our relationships with other people. And to say it a different way, and I, I just got to tell you, this is a user warning, right? You, you have medicine, there's a little warning label on the side. That's what this is about to be. Some of what we read today is going to be painful, right? Some of what we talk about today is going to be painful. You may feel some conviction. You may wince a little bit. I'm just telling you, I already have. <laughs> studying and preparing. I'm like, God, I'm not necessarily qualified to, to teach all of these, Right? But there's a resolution coming at the end. There's a gospel resolution coming at the end. In the meantime, take a deep breath and just kind of follow along, right? Listen, how we treat other people ultimately reveals what we really believe about God. I told you it might hurt a little bit. The way that we treat other people ultimately reveals what we believe about God. Now, I understand there's grace. We're going to talk about grace, and, and I'm not saying that flippantly or lightly. We do need grace. Amen? amen. That, good job. That's a good, hearty amen. And boy, if we're going to say amen about something, let's say amen about grace, right? I mean, without it, we're all in trouble. And yet, even in the context of grace, ultimately, the way that I treat someone, the justice that I showed, the, the righteousness that I conduct myself with towards other people is driven by what I think God wants. And maybe I haven't thought about it very well. Okay, well, maybe I need to spend some time thinking about it. Maybe I need to read Scripture with that lens. Okay, God, what are you calling me to as I treat other people? And listen, I know you don't get it right, and I don't get it right, but ultimately... In our relationships with each other, while we do need grace, our relationships are also going to improve drastically as we dial up the justice that we treat each other with, right? Hey, just for a second, imagine if you, if you are married to someone and the person you're married to says, you know, I'm not really going to focus on justice as long as you're going to show me a lot of grace. I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. <laughs> Who wants to sign up for that? It's an incredible idea. How we treat others reveals what we really believe about God. It's said this way in 1 John 4, verses 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Ouch. 
And I said, ouch, too. And I don't really always like that verse. <laughs> Often, I don't like that verse. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Listen. If you take that at face value without context, there's something in you that goes, that logic is faulty. I think I can argue against that logic. But actually, the subplot for our sermon today of what ties these three commandments together is what he's talking about here. And it's what makes the whole thing make sense. If you do not love your brother whom you have seen, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. And this commandment we have from him, from God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The only point I'm trying to make is the two things are tied together. And we don't get to say that they're separate. They have to be tied together. We love God. We have to love other people. Interestingly enough, I mentioned this, this uh, fellow a few weeks ago, a guy named Alec Mocher, who is an Irish uh, theologian, passed away just a few years ago, has a great commentary on the story of the Exodus, and really his is on the book of Exodus. He said this, I think, and I didn't put this in your notes, but um, you can write it down or I'll remind me and I'll send it to you later. The Old Testament makes no distinction between crimes and sins. What's the difference? Well, crimes are what we commit against other people, and sins are what we commit against God. And the Old Testament just kind of draws one circle around the whole thing. And I'd never thought about that before, which is why he got to wrote a book, write a book, and I didn't. Right? What, what a brilliant observation that the Old Testament sees crimes and sins as very similar. Why? Because we're all sinning against others and against God. This is what we do. It's how we conduct ourselves. And so the idea, the subplot that we mentioned is really the idea of the Imago Dei. Everybody say it with me. Imago Dei. One more time. Imago Dei. You're now a theologian. There you go. So if you go to lunch with somebody today who wasn't here and they say, what did you guys talk about this morning? Just trot it out with a straight face. We, we discussed the Imago Dei. Right? It's actually pretty simple. The idea that we're made in the image of God. Oh, I've heard that. Right. There's a, there's a term for it. That's all it means. We are made in the image of God. This Latin term, the image of God, Imago Dei. And the Imago Dei means that we are to do two things. Very quickly, and I would flash you back to this. I was having a conversation with someone uh, actually this week about this idea uh, and they reminded me, which I, I also remember for myself, that Christmas of 2020, our sermon series was Imago Day, And we spent three weeks unpacking what the Imago Day is, how does it affect us, how, what, even though you've maybe never heard the term before, an understanding of this term, which is not complicated, actually really will affect the way that you treat other people. And so the basic definition that we used then, which I think is a pretty faithful definition theologically, the Imago Day means that we are to mirror and manifest God. Or to say it a different way, we are to reflect Him and we are to represent Him. We are to reflect Him. Now, this is where you get a little bit into a theological discussion, which I love and I would love to have with you. I don't know that there's one right answer. I, my take on it is kind of the Reformed take, which is the Imago Dei is still present in all of us, but it's been greatly marred by sin been greatly affected by sin. It's actually, so to, listen, think about it. It's actually linear. Like if I'm made in the image of God, 
but I'm also sinful, which was not God's original design nor desire for me, of course it's going to weigh that down. Of course, if you dial up the sin level in my life, the further I'm going to get away. Now, the image of God in me never goes away. But it may be harder to see. And it may be harder to understand. So now flip that on its head. The more, if I can grow in Christ-likeness, y'all dial in on this. This is what a disciple is. This is the, our theological word is sanctification. We're growing in holiness. This is our calling. If I grow in holiness in the way that I treat my neighbor and the way that I react to God, right? As you dial up the, God's holiness and I'm able to leave sin behind, not through my own power, but through the spirit who's now empowering me to live the Christian life, the more that I can do that, the more I'm going to return to reflect God's original design and God's original image in me. Doesn't that make sense? Thank you. I think it does too. I think it's actually a pretty linear idea. We're to mirror God, which means, listen, ideally, when we are Imago Dei representations, ideally, we are called to reflect many of God's attributes. Because many of his attributes are designed to be reflected in us. You're never going to be omnipotent, okay? You're never going to be omnipresent. But God's, God's attributes also involve things like righteousness and love, right? Mercy and grace. Justice, the kind of justice that we've been talking about. Ideally, we're going to reflect those attributes. So certainly, as I grow in discipleship, that's going to be dialed up. I'm going, to return, I'm going to return closer and closer back to being God's image. I'm, I'm reflecting God. I'm mirroring God. The second part of this is manifesting. What does that mean? Are you ready for this? In many ways, especially as a follower, especially as a disciple, you've actually been called to be an ambassador of God to those around you. It's not just that you naturally, inherently reflect God, although you do. And I want you to hear this. Listen. This is huge. Every single person that you lock eyes with, even the ones that you don't like, are made in the image of God. Welcome to why theologically racism's wrong. That's where the whole argument is based. I said this in 2020 when we unpacked this, and I don't have time to get into it. The argument against abortion and the argument against racism are actually based in the same theological premise. That everyone is made in the image of God. Every single person you lock eyes with. For six years I traveled the world when I wasn't pastoring, and I worked with people who lived in garbage dumps. That's a thing when you leave America. They make their houses out of trash. They dig through trash. They become a part of the trash. They see themselves that way, and their society sees them that way. I have not yet seen anyone on the planet poorer than these people. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I haven't seen them. And yet, the more that I could tie back to what I know to be true about the Imago Dei, listen, I don't have to look for a reason to give them dignity. It's there. I just have to wake up enough to recognize that if I'm not showing someone else dignity, the problem might not be them, it might be me. Ouch. 
And that's not just an ouch for you, that's an ouch for the American culture, right? <coughs> this is the reason why we're not showing each other dignity. It's based in the Imago Day. We mirror and we manifest. Genesis 5, verses 1 and 3. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He made him in the likeness of God. The Imago Day. We skip down to verse 3. Adam then fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Here we go. Listen. Adam's originally, Adam and Eve are originally made in the image of God, and they pass it down. And they pass it down, and it just keeps getting passed down all the way to you. And all the way to those around you. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth. Now, listen, here's the thing. Some of you maybe are getting a little nervous because we've really slowed down here like he hasn't even started the next commandment. <laughs> we're like 20 minutes into this sermon. We're laying the foundation because now we're going to move fairly quickly. Because the Imago Day is actually what ties these commandments together. You can make an argument for each of these commandments from the Imago Day. So last week we said that we're called to, each commandment is a representation that we're called to something. Listen, last week we said that we're called to love, specifically we're called to love God. We're called to acceptance, right? We're called to sacrifice, and we're called to commitment. We're called to do these things before our behavior, right? God has called us to love. He has loved us. He's called us to acceptance. He accepts us. Just This is what he did for the nation of Israel. And this I, we, we talked about it last week. And we've seen this as a theme through this series. And even knowing what happened you know, yesterday, or I, I think it happened Friday, the, the, the attack, the original attack. Like we can talk about how, how Israel's not perfect and they're not right and they need to get their act together. Right, that's one of the themes in the Old Testament. And the fascinating idea behind it is God still says, these are my people. And he's thrown the gates wide. Tim mentioned this at, like at the beginning, that we've now been grafted into those promises. But acceptance and love from God is never about you deserve it. Never. You know why? That's because you never deserve it. Ouch. It's actually the best news you could ever hear because that means you and I are now free to stop pretending like we deserve it. And we're free to stop trying to convince each other that we deserve it. We're just going to say, you know what, we're just sinners. I mean, starting right here with me and Isaac. We're just sinners and we'll just let it echo out, right? We're, 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 we started a club of sinners and we're going to not pretend that we're anything other than that. We're not going to be, as my mama used to say, too big for our britches. Come on. Isn't that what social media is about? We're trying to convince each other that we have some kind of something that we don't have. You and I are valuable because we're made in God's image and because God said we're valuable. What an incredible idea. And God says this to these people. They've already loved, they're already, and this is the important, this is the reason that I'm saying it. Listen, he told them that before he said anything about their behavior. Their behavior was fairly atrocious, and he gave them the Ten Commandments, but even when he gave them the Ten Commandments, he did not make it a condition for whether or not he was going to love them or accept them. Because he already loved them, and he already accepted them. And I'm just telling you, that may be the most profound thing that I'll say today. And we're going to keep moving. 
But if you can find a quiet place this week to just let that wash over you, it'll change you. God loves me, not based on my behavior. He just loves me. We're called to consecration. That's the first commandment. We're called to exclusivity. You can go back and watch last week's sermon if you don't remember this or if you weren't here. We're called to consecration, exclusivity, reverence, and rest. So here's number next. Here we go. Commandment number five. God calls us to respect. This is in your notes. God calls us to respect. He says, honor your father and mother. And the key word here really is honor And again, this is another flashback. I think it was two weeks ago we talked about this idea. Jethro told Moses, this work that you're called to is heavy. Do you remember that? This work that you're called to is heavy. This is actually the same word. To be heavy, to be weighty, to be of great value and worth. This is actually one of the sub-themes that you see reappearing over and over again through the story of the Exodus because not only did Jethro use this language, remember when the Israelites fought the Amalekites and Moses raised his arms and they were winning and then when his arms got heavy, he lowered his arms and they were losing so they had to figure out how to prop his arms up so that they would win and they did, and they did, right? They did prop his arms up and they did win. Heavy, heaviness, Pharaoh's heart was heavy, the plagues were heavy, It's a recurring theme. The point of this, please hear this, and this is a sermon that I can preach to you as a 49-year-old that I don't know if I could have preached as a, let's see, I started preaching when I was 20. I don't think this would have been a very good sermon then. That we have to treat our parents as if they're important and as if they matter, even when they don't do everything right. Are you ready for this theological bombshell? I'm just going to throw a concussion grenade out in the middle of the room. Here we go. You ready? Your parents were sinners. My mama is no longer a sinner because she's in heaven. What a day that will be, right? And so some, I, I can tell you stories and you can tell me stories of the, play, the ways that they messed up. Okay. It doesn't mean that they weren't doing important work. And man, oh man, especially as I get older, you want to know why I want to show them grace? Here we go. Because I need quite a bit of it myself. And if I want to receive grace, there's a whole sermon, a whole series of sermons. If I want to receive grace, I better be quick to hand it out to other people. That's a biblical idea. I need to be very careful of how... I don't want to take them lightly. I don't want to take them for granted. They must be regarded with seriousness and with value because God calls me to respect them. This is, this is why the first John argument makes sense. This Imago Dei idea. They have dignity. They have inherent worth and I should treat them as such. They're not something to be scraped off the bottom of my shoe. No matter what they did to me. I know this is tough to hear. James 3, 8-9. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here we go. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the Imago Dei. You feel how the argument's more weighty then? Yes, you can't separate these two things. Because 
for whatever amount that they got wrong, God had a design when he made those people your parents. I cannot bless God and curse his image bearers. It's in your notes. I cannot bless God and curse his image bearers. That's not how it works. That's not an option left open to us. You know what? They did the best that they could. That's what I have to believe. With the light that they were given. And it's easy. I was having this conversation with one of you recently, and and you know who you are, right? We're talking about all the ways. Looking back, what were they thinking? Why did they do that? Why did they not do this? Why did what like why what was the logic there? And this person I was talking to is also a parent, and we both kind of at the same time went, Oh, you know what? I I hope no doubt my kids are gonna tell similar stories about me. (laughs) What were they thinking? And I can tell you, I know I'm not getting it right, but I'm trying to do the best that I can, generally speaking. Need a lot of grace. My parents do too. God calls us to respect. God also calls us to protection. Verse 13 says, you shall not murder. We're actually not going to spend a ton of time on this one. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of pushback on this. But I, (laughs) right, well. But I need you to understand the reason for it. Kind of like I need you to understand not just that racism is wrong. I need you to understand theologically why it's wrong. Because it actually enlightens the way you think about it. It's all based in the Imago Dei. And murder is putting yourself in God's place and taking, you're attacking the image of God in someone else. It's wrong. It's actually the highest wrong that we could ever commit. This is primarily when this word, it's used 47 times in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's always human on human. It's not a human killing an animal or anything like that, right? But it's, it's never, it's also not used, listen up, I'm, and I'm just, these are the facts. We can argue about what they mean later. It's also not used in context of war. Not in the Old Testament. This is not the word that's used. It's not in used in terms of capital punishment, And it's not used in terms of self-defense. This word's not used in those contexts. It's mostly planned and premeditated murder. I'm actually going to throw it back to Isaac here because he gave me this great quote this week. This is from Cardinal Joseph Bernardin. Okay, we're reading this together. This is in your notes. The person is the clearest reflection of the presence of God among us. What a great quote. To lay violent hands on the person is to come as close as we can to laying violent hands on God. Oh, there's a theological reason we shouldn't do this, right? There's almost always a deeper representation going on, and we are called to grow in our understanding of that deeper... What's the sub-theme that's happening here? Well, we're laying hands on God himself. It's as close as we can come. To diminish the human person is to come as close as we can to diminishing God. Interestingly enough, and Isaac will correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this discussion comes from abortion, right? Wait a second. So it fits right. It's all the Imago Dei. When you come to a deeper and more fuller understanding of what it means for people to be made in the image of God, it transforms a lot of issues around you. 
It reinforms in a good way how I think about the ways that I'm interacting with people and where are the lines that we should or shouldn't cross and how do we draw those lines. Last one, God calls us to fidelity. You shall not commit adultery. This goes more about uh, back to the representation piece that we, yes, we are called to mirror God, but we're also called to manifest God. And so, listen, even as forgiven sinners, God's not going to leave us wondering what he expects of us. God's going to give us some guidance. Welcome to the Ten Commandments. God's going to give us some guidance of how now, as his followers, we should conduct ourselves. And the offense of adultery disrupts and defiles the image of God in me and the image of God in the person that I'm married to. Why? Because marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. I've conducted a bunch of them. And if you ask me to conduct yours and we stand up here, you're going to stand in front of me and you're going to promise something to someone. You're not going to say, well, listen, if you ever do A, B, and C, then I'm out of here. That's a contract. This is a covenant. You show up and say, I promise to, I promise to, I promise to. And more or less what we're saying, in fact, it's not more or less, it is absolutely what we're saying. No matter what. I'm going to be here. Can I prove it to you? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Does any of this sound familiar? I know some of you are feeling maybe a little pain and a little trauma right now because there's some stuff going on in your story or there's some stuff in the back part of your story, right? Some things that happened maybe recently or not so recently. Hang on. We're not finished. When we transgress against that, we're actually doing damage to God's, the way that God's called us to model his faithfulness. This is what he's calling us to do. Ephesians 5, I just very quickly we're going to read this. And, and again, this is a very deep passage and we're just skimming some of the parts of it. But I want you to listen to it in the context of fidelity. God calling us to fidelity. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, as. Love your wife as. And by the way, he starts with husbands. Men, if you want to transform your home, try to get better at doing this. Love your wife as. Here's your model. Listen, there's a parallel here. The way that we love our wives is supposed to be paralleled by the way Christ loves the church. I'm just telling you, that's a pretty tall order. He unpacks it. For in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man, this is quoted from Genesis 2, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, what's the mystery? Listen, how do two become one? It's a mystery. It's a miracle. But it happens. Two become one. Well, then how do you unwind them? I, that's part of the 
situations we find ourselves in, right? And sometimes not by our own choice. We just find ourselves in these situations. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is a huge idea that marriage is reflected in, the way that we conduct ourselves in marriage is reflected in the Imago Dei, and we're called to represent God well. Which is why God's vision is for us to maintain the sanctity of the marriage union. Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor among all. There's our weighty word, isn't it? You hear it? Hey, we should treat marriage like it's a big deal. We should. It is a big deal. It's a huge commitment. And yeah, I know, maybe you know a lot of people who are married and it may seem like it's run of the mill. It's really not. And if I conduct your wedding, and some of you can attest to this because I did conduct your wedding. In the premarital counseling, I'm going to remind you, when you show up, this is not about all these people are here and we've got flowers and who's walking down the aisle in what order, right? Now there's a photographer and who, what are we eating? And this is about the two of you standing in front of God, represented by me, which is maybe the biggest joke of the whole thing, right? <laughs> I represent God in the state, and you're vowing to do something. Yeah, I think maybe that marriage should be held in honor. And for some of you, this didn't get to be your story, and, and it wasn't your choice. You didn't ask for the mess that you were handling. If that's you, could I just tell you I'm sorry that happened to you? That stinks. But what, what kind of culture would we... That, oh, this is so big. Here's God. He's got his chosen people. He's sending them to a new land, and you're going to inhabit this new land, and you're going to build a society that didn't exist. Doesn't it make sense that he would tell them some of these things? Doesn't it make sense that he would tell this society, hey, be really careful and really serious about your marriages, and your home life is going to matter the most? Why? Because as goes the home and the family, so goes the society. And that's not, a, that's not a, like a political commentary. That's a human commentary. This is the way human societies work. And so God said, you're going to need to guard the way that children treat their parents and the way that spouses treat each other. You're going to need to guard this really seriously. Why? Because I want you to build something that lasts. And I want you to experience my flourishing. I want you to experience my best. I want you to return to the way that I designed these things to work. This is very tough to hear. And I'll tell you why. And I think, so we're, you know, we've just talked about commandments 5, 6, and 7, right? I was thinking about this this week. This is a tough thing to listen to. It's very tense. And I think if we go in reverse order, right, it'll make more sense. If I say, you shall not murder, I mean, you guys laughed when I said it earlier. I think most people in here agree with me, and I didn't mean it to be funny, but I guess it was. Why? Because we all agree on that. We can all get behind it. Y'all listen up. And most of us don't feel very much guilt about it. Why? Because I would say that it's a safe bet that there are very few murderers in the room. I don't mean that to be funny. Maybe there are. I don't know. I don't know the story. I don't know your story. But probably we go, oh, well, that's low-hanging fruit. Sure, we shouldn't murder each other. 
And then we expand it to talk about adultery. And some of us in the room start to squirm, don't we? Because there are people in this room who are guilty of having committed adultery. And I don't know how your story ended. Maybe you lost your spouse. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But it gets a little bit more tense in here, doesn't it? Do you feel that? But then you back up and you realize that God actually placed disrespecting our parents on the same level. And could I tell you what I know about 100% of the people in this room? If you made it through the teenage years, you have disrespected your parents. I'm, see, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. We just have, haven't we? Come on. So wherever you draw the line, we're all guilty. And I'm telling you, if that's the way you approach the Ten Commandments, then you've missed the point. I'm guilty. God doesn't love me anymore. No, this is God casting vision for the way He wants you to live. But this is not based on His approval or His acceptance. We already have that. So could I just say to you, if you've felt tension, if you've felt guilt this morning over anything that we've said, there's grace. There's, there's forgiveness. There's acceptance. And most importantly, listen, there's a chance to start over and get it right tomorrow. You know how I know that? Because morning by morning, His mercies are new. His mercies I see because His mercies are new morning after morning after morning. And so the approach that we need to take to all of the commandments because we've broken many of them. And I'm just telling you, don't get on your high horse because there are one or two that you haven't broken and you see somebody that has, and so let me offer you a little commentary. that There's no pride and arrogance in the gospel. Billy Graham used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Isn't that a great statement? We're all sinners who deserve nothing, but who have been given the chance to have Everything. And we get the chance to write a better story. Tim, do you have any instructions on that? I do. It's called the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is our chance to write a better story. Ultimately, we all fall short. The Ten Commandments are not a path to salvation. That path, listen and look at me, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. You put your faith in the idea. You put all your weight into the idea that you're a sinner. You're going to own it. You're going to quit making excuses. I'm a sinner, and I deserve nothing. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, I, I've been given the chance to have everything. And so I'm going to put my faith in the fact that Jesus died to save me. And I'm going to embrace that. And I may not even understand all the ways that's going to impact my life, but I'm going to embrace it anyway. And I'm going to start following him in the best way that I know how. Not so that he'll love me, but because he already does. If that's you, come find me when this thing's over. Go find Tim Schultz. He was up here. Just find one of the elders. Find one of us. We would love to talk to you more about that. So many of us in here have already made that our commitment. Aren't you glad for mercy and grace? You need it. We don't deserve it, but man, God's been good to us. Let's bow our heads and pray together. This morning, very quickly, we're going to pray Psalm 119, 77.
I told you a couple weeks ago, Psalm 119 is an interesting chapter because it really talks about the Word of God. Every verse is about God's Word. And so you'd think in a psalm like that, it wouldn't be very much about mercy and grace. And that's why I love this verse, Psalm 119.77. In the context of a psalm about the Word of God, this verse leads with mercy. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Listen to the order here, because you're about to pray this. Listen to the order. Mercy comes first. And then we have a proper context to respond to his law, to respond to what he's calling us to do. So for just a minute, just a minute, just where you are, I want you to thank God specifically for this week, how two or three ways he has shown you his mercy. Thank him for mercy and acceptance that he's given to you this week in areas where you've messed up and you don't deserve it, but he still extends it to you. Do that now. Oh, his mercy is more stronger than darkness. amazing how much God loves us? Isn't it amazing how much he accepts us when we don't deserve any of it? When you can begin to wrap your mind around that idea, you've now given yourself the context to understand his commandments, his calling on our life. When we receive and meditate on mercy, that gives us the context. Listen, not just to follow his law, not just to obey his law, but to delight in his law. Because that's how the verse ends up. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And so our hope for you, our prayer for you, and I think God's hope for you, is not just that you would be obedient, but that you would be delightfully obedient, that you would love to obey God, that it would be your highest calling and your greatest desire. That happens in a context of mercy. And so now that you've thanked God for his mercy, I want you to take just a minute and ask God to empower you with justice. The justice that we discussed, the justice that lets you act right towards other people. No matter how you've treated them in the past, you can start a new story. So in the context of mercy, ask God to empower you this week to act with justice according to his law, according to what he's called us to do in the ways that we treat each other. His mercy is more stronger than darkness. You every more sins they are many. His mercy is more. God, we love you. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Even when we come under conviction, even when we realize that we are guilty of sin, and some of us, we've been believers for decades, and we still sin, we still 
make messes. And sometimes we do it often through the course of a week. Your mercy still as big as it ever was. Your acceptance of us as big as it ever was. You're so good to us. And we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't even know we needed it. And you sent your son to the cross for us. That's the height of love. Help us to understand that your calling on our life to treat each other well is not based in some performance uh, goal of performing right and getting you to accept us the right way. God, it's based in that you already accept us, that you want something bigger and better for us. And God, that ultimately we are called to return to reflecting your image to those around us. So empower us not just to do that faithfully, but to do it appropriately, to do it in the right way, to do it out of a heart of overflowing love and gratitude for your mercy. Thank you again for the cross, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.